Welcome to another great archive from Restorative Justice on the Rise. For more information about this ongoing public dialogue series focusing on education resources and movement building in restorative justice and beyond, go to restorativejusticeontherise.com. This archive features an extraordinary conversation with Glenn Aparicio Perry. The topic was original justice. Enjoy this dialogue we had with him in December 2013 on restorative justice on the rise. Everyone to restorative justice on the rise. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and such a warm welcome to each of you. You are the ones who make up the key uh, marrow and meat of this important dialogue space, and it's considered by many to be a virtual dialogue forum. And the beauty of it is that at any point, especially in the second half of the hour that we spend together, you can get involved in the live dialogue. In just a moment, I'll be welcoming, honoring, and introducing our very special guest tonight. But before that, I'd like to just share a few points about the room that we're in together here. If you've never joined us before, first of all, this is an ongoing dialogue series every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. At some times, we have special editions that are related to restorative justice and peace building. So we welcome your participation. And many of you probably also know that during the registration process, you can submit your questions and comments for our special guests and also submit content ideas as well as guest speakers. There's so many of you out there who are contributing in your own way, um, all of us indeed, uh, probably on this call tonight and every week in the field of restorative justice or related field. So if you have an idea for someone you'd like to hear from on this series, uh, the whole point is to really showcase the great work that's happening, get people connected and talking, and to provide an honest platform for truthful dialogue and for tools and political will and education in this field and beyond. So again, welcome. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation later this evening, we're going to be together for an hour, and you can do so by pressing 1 on your telephone keypad. As many of you hopefully know by now, we also have archived over 100 of our dialogues, and you can find more out about all of that, including the upcoming schedule. And as I've been saying, patience is needed right now because we have some exciting developments for our website and podcast, and in the new year, you'll be able to stream it on iTunes. So stay tuned for that. Go to restorativejusticeontherise.com for more information. So without further, t further ado, of course, tonight's dialogue is one that I've been looking forward to for quite some time, and it's about original justice. And, of course, having talks about practical, um, practitioner-related tools and 
and all of the things that are happening in, in the transformation of our world right now in justice and as well as beyond, there's an underpinning space and a field of understanding what has come before, of dialoguing about it and exploring more deeply the reference points which have brought us to this very moment in time. And so inviting Glenn Aparicio Perry a while ago, I thought of him, I've known him for many years now, uh, just honoring his work with the Seed Institute and the incredibly groundbreaking Language of Spirit dialogues and conferences which spanned from 1999 to 2011 which were moderated by Leroy Littlebear who has joined us in the past on related dialogues. He's also the author of a forthcoming book called Original Thinking, a Radical Revisioning of Thought, Time, Humanity, and Nature. And this, this gentleman has quite uh, a mind and a heart in equal magnitude to go with it. And so it's just a, it's a pleasure to invite him into this space with all of us to open with a prayer, and then we'll go into our conversation. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you so much, Molly, and, and welcome to everyone who is listening. Ah, beloved Creator, Great Spirit, that underlies everything we see, touch, taste, hear, and smell. On this beautiful evening, we are gathered to speak about justice, to speak about restoring justice, to speak about restoring balance and harmony. Ah, and I, I offer a special blessing to you, Molly, for uh, for bringing this electronic talking circle together. It's a great act that you are doing and continue to do with with love and service once a week. That is so beautiful. And I offer love to your mother, who I know um, is part of the impetus for this show. It may not be the whole impetus, but her being imprisoned. I I just I I, I pray for her, I pray for you, I pray for all those that are imprisoned in their own minds, in their own thoughts that are that cling too close to them, and their own tacit infrastructure that prevents them from their heart opening and seeing the beauty and balance of nature as it is, just is. So I, I am so blessed and happy to be here this evening and to open up this conversation. So. Please, Molly. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Aho. So as we weave the dialogue tonight, let's start with perhaps the origin of your journey or at some point that you'd like to share or any part of it that had led you, Glenn, into the creation of such an extraordinary book, which is about to be birthed into the world, and we'll say more about that later. But let's begin there, and then let's see how that ties in the concept of original justice into restorative justice. Thank you. Thank you, Molly. Um, you know, uh, I just feel very blessed. Uh, I was part of an ongoing tradition 
that uh, that uh, through friendship with Dan Moonhawk Alford, uh, an ancestor I pray to every day, uh, through friendship with Moonhawk, uh, Moonhawk uh, had been invited to participate in this groundbreaking series of dialogues that began before Seed ever began them. Seed began dialogues in 1999. In 1992, it was Leroy Little Bear and David Peat approaching David Bohm to initiate this meeting of the minds between indigenous elders and Western scientists. And Moonhawk was invited there because of his mentor, Sagyesh Yonbud Henderson, who's head of the Native Law Center, actually, in Saskatoon. Leroy, by the way, is a uh, Leroy Little Bear is also uh, an attorney, um, and both of them have worked together on uh, on restoring biodiversity, and they've worked on indigenous rights issues uh, in Canada primarily, but not only in Canada. Um, I had been blessed to meet Moonhawk years before then, um, in 1983, when I took a class called Anthropological Linguistics, which was actually the title doesn't even... Uh, tell the whole truth because it was a a intersection. In fact, Moonhawk used to uh, speak about himself standing at the lonely intersection of quantum physics, Native America, linguistics, uh, and, it, it, and and it really was kind of a lonely intersection. But uh, not when Moonhawk brought it alive, <laughs> and. And uh, it became um, a seed of the later institute that I founded SEED. And uh, we founded SEED in 1996. And then uh, even before I founded SEED, I brought Moonhawk to New Mexico. And he used to do workshops uh, called God is Not a Noun in Native America. And then uh, we started SEED in 96. And then in 1999, we were we started the dialogues and it just came because it was Moonhawk's literal pipe dream. He loved to smoke the pipe and he smoked that pipe and he just said to me and said, hey, what if we brought the dialogues to Albuquerque? And I just said, yes, let's do it. And if we can't get a grant, let's invite an audience to listen. And that's exactly what we did. We did get a really small grant of $5,000 the first year and that paid for, you know, it, it got us going. And then we also asked people to come and offer a donation to, to attend. And it really isn't just attending because, as you know, it's a principle of quantum physics that the observer affects the observed and the, and the consciousness of the whole room is really what's happening. And Leroy understood that really well. So we had these beautiful dialogues and, uh, for many years, for 13 years. And they always had that same kind of cycle where... Leroy would start with a question that was a bit of a koan, something that would wrap up your mind, you know, would kind of stop your rational mind from thinking the way it normally did. And then uh, after that, there would be, at some point in the dialogue, there would be an outpouring of emotion. And then there would be a kind of reconciliation, of coming of heart, hearts together. Never planned that way particularly, but that was the rhythm and flow of those dialogues. And it really did open people's heart up and it made for great healing because, you know, when you have a, a beautiful moderator like Leroy is and he creates a safe space where it's okay to 
say whatever you want to say and to get out of the normal way that you think and to allow spirit to flow through the room, magic can happen, and it always did. It always did. So, mm. you know, the very first question he asked, you know, in 1999 was, is it possible to come up with an original thought? And when he asked that question, very interesting thing happened in the room. You know, most of the Western people, including my buddy Moonhawk, tried to think of something new that had never been, happened before, never been said before. I think Moonhawk was talking about the queen watching the castle go on fire on TV and, you know, and saying, you know, and the, somebody saying to them that the, the castle was burning. But, but, uh, um, but the native people took the question completely different. They went to the heart of the question. They took the question as an invitation to connect to origin as a place, as a place of regeneration uh, and a timeless origin. And that's when, you know, maybe not even immediately, but shortly after, that's when I came to realize that that was the, the simple divide between indigenous and Western consciousness where... Western consciousness had substituted time for place. So that's why we are addicted to the idea of the universe beginning sometime. Had to begin. When did it begin? Of course, somebody like Grandfather Leon said to me, you know, once that he didn't think, but he knew that the universe has always been here. And that makes more sense to me, because, you know, I mean, this whole trap that we fall into about linear time, linear thinking, um, is embedded in our language. We just can't speak of anything in English and a lot of Romance languages too. You know, we can't speak of anything without pinpointing it to a place on a timeline. And that the problem with that is it tears our soul. It tears our soul apart when we when we are not connected to events that happened except on this linear timeline so you know and and uh, that's the that's the that's the 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 impetus for for writing the book and also the fact of it's a book that isn't written in the standard way because it was inspired by dialogue and as best as possible I wanted to have the book have the feeling of dialogue and in a dialogue meaning unfolds over time, it gets deeper and deeper, and that's what I set out mm. to do. So it's it's driven by questions, you know, and there's four questions driving it. And the first one is, is it possible to have an original thought? And the second one is, what does it mean to be human? The third one is, how has our thinking created our world and what is now emerging? And the fourth one is, is can education uh, recover original thinking or restore original thinking? And, and that's, that's the way it happened. And I also didn't write it in a way where I knew what, I was going, what was going to happen. I had no idea. I gave a, over to spirit and just said, you know, ask the prayer and kept asking a prayer for what was supposed to unfold would happen. And uh, I'm really glad I did it that way, and I, it's just deeply more satisfying, and I, I think it will be for the readers, too. Mm. Can you share with us original justice? What, what, 
it's difficult to put that into perhaps uh, succinct words. <laughs> Speaking of no, uh, no, no. pinning things down linearly, but let's let's go into this concept of original justice. And there, what you shared just now was so rich. It made me think too of of some other points that we might bring into the into the conversation regarding tacit infrastructure and also how important a Bohmian style dialogue or a Leroy Little Bear moderated style dialogue is to this concept of justice. So start start with what you see original justice meaning and then we'll go into some other pieces here. Okay. Um, I will be happy to speak about original justice, but I know that it's like many dialogue questions Leroy asks, it certainly doesn't have one answer. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was writing the book in a way that I allowed it to unfold, I think that is the opposite of the way the justice system um, operates in America, because um, the premise is different. The premise is that we're going to make an argument, you know, and that's the way most books are written too. We're going to make an argument. This is what we think. This is why we think this way. And here's the evidence: A, B, C, D, E. You know, see these, see these, these bits of evidence. Um, and uh, I intentionally didn't do that in the writing of the book. And I also try to live my life that way, you know. So it's. It's uh, looking for the signs, following a gut instinct, and allowing that instinct to unfold into into a, in, into a, what you might call an opinion, and then later it becomes a knowledge, perhaps. But but even then, then try to let it go because I, I don't want to hold on to things too much. So um, you know. The, the justice system, I found, I'm so grateful to you for asking me to come on this program because I found when I even began to contemplate being on it, how much I cared about this actually, you know, and I, I even as I've always felt very disconnected from the judicial system and never quite believed in it. I've never really participated in the judicial system in America. I've never served on a jury and whenever I was asked to serve in a jury, which was three times, I would tell them that uh, I don't believe in man-made justice. You know, I, 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 if you put me on this jury, I am going to render no verdict. You will have a hung jury. And I really meant it every time, and, and uh, I wasn't really trying to just get out of jury duty. I just don't like the idea, actually. And I'm not saying that other people have to believe as I do, but I just there's something about the whole system of judging um, other human beings that was kind of repelling to me. Um, and uh, we all make mistakes. I've made my more than fair share of them, and... Uh, uh, I've hurt people. Um, I've uh, uh, been unkind to people, and uh, you know what? What I always seek to do is to is to come to a reconciliation with anybody that I've harmed, um, and I think that uh, that's what makes so much more sense, in a, you know, uh, than uh, than having a legal trial where we're trying to prove somebody's uh, guilt or innocence. I mean, 
this is a remnant or a vestige of linear thinking. Um, and it's always so much more complicated what, take, what, what causes a person to do something um, I and the ramifications. Yeah. I want to just yeah, yeah. go to a, a piece that was just so rich just there around mm. what you said um, to be man-made justice. So let's just say, okay, original justice perhaps is an inherent knowing within humanity um, of something and perhaps could even be, uh, but you can, you can share your thoughts here, a more natural form of, of humane justice that perhaps we have an inherent knowing, um, whereas man-made justice is a whole different thing. Could, could you speak about the comparative between those two and why it's so important? Um, I would love to. Um, I think we have to try to... I always like to go to the etymology of words um, and uh, try to... Because it's like uncovering the archaeology of the mind, you know. And, the, and justice, I mean, everybody has this image of the, of the, the scales of justice. Um, and... Um, um, but I think there are earlier, there are earlier uh, origins to uh, uh, to the word justice that that go to more having to do with the with the revolution of the spheres, you know, um, and going to have to do with the order. We don't use this term very much, but Navajo do, for instance, you know, the order of the universe. Um, so the way that things. The way that things happen now, not that doesn't mean that it happens again. I mean, native people, you know, at least Leroy tells me, native people don't really prefer words like the laws of nature. You know, I I think of it more as the habits of nature. You know, just things happen a certain habitual way, and it's very important to notice them, but they can change very subtly. But uh, but that's that attention to balance and harmony is where the justice lies. I mean, it's, and a lot of it has to do with patience. So, you know, uh, we're gathered tonight, you know, after the, the recent passing of Nelson Mandela. So I think that uh, if everybody probably has learned from him the, what Charles Eisenstein calls the technology of patience. Um, the technology of patience, the, the, it really is a technology to uh, uh, how to work with patients. So to be in prison for 27 years um, and then to come back with a heart that isn't hardened but opened is pretty magnificent example. And he couldn't have done that if he wasn't paying attention to something that was really beyond the limits of a, of a cell, but something that is happening and unfolding and is beautiful in the cosmos that we can mm. tune into no matter where we are. You know, mm. so it doesn't matter whether we're in a, a uh, behind bars, we can open to it. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but sorry. <laughs> that's what no, that's just me. beautiful, though. That's so beautifully put. And, um, you know, the, the concept of, of, of man-made justice and the, you know, the predicament that we're in right now. Of, uh, would you call it a forgetfulness? Um, we've come out of harmony, uh, away from harmony perhaps, but is that our inherent knowing of harmony and of, of, of balance? 
Yes, I, I think it is. And, and sometimes we can be too uh, you know, negative about this. I think human beings are very good people and, and generally act in very good, harmonious ways. It's quite amazing to me. It's just mm-hmm. everyday life, you know, mm-hmm. people generally drive on the right side of the road. They generally don't attack each other. You know, these, these things, when they do happen, these, when horrific things do happen, then we, we obviously play that up a lot. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's just habitual. Sometimes it's just being jaded. You know, I, I'll give you an example of a story where I was, uh, you know, one thing that, that kind of soured me perhaps on the on, uh, current justice system. I was once uh, living in New York City. I was attending NYU graduate school, and I was driving a taxi on the side. Actually, I drove a taxi where where they filmed the TV show Taxi, <laughs> which doesn't exist anymore. Um, but uh, I was once held up by a gun. You know, a guy. You know, very. You know, guy asked me to go back. You know, this directed me, and I didn't even. I wasn't aware that he was directing me to where there was really nobody around, which even can happen in New York City. And he pulled out a gun and he held it on me. Um, and uh, I remember not feeling any fear at all, but I was very attentive. You know, there was a gun pointed at me. So, I, you know, I gave him uh, money, uh, and uh, he gave me my life. And I thought that was a really even exchange <laughs> at the time. You know, now I did report it to the police, um, um, uh, and uh, and it turns out that this guy did kill some people a couple of nights later too. So I reported it to the police, but the night I reported it to the police, they actually asked me to describe the gun, which I did, and then they made fun of me because I had uh, because the man only had a twenty two. They said, ah, oh, you know, the first shot would have bent around your cranium. You know, it would have taken at least two or three shots to kill you. Um, and I was like flabbergasted and it was really quite astonishing so um, when they asked me to testify I didn't testify <laughs> now, I'm not sure whether I should or shouldn't I mean it's just that I, I wasn't moved to because I kind of mm. felt like my my interaction with the fellow was um, even and and what they wanted wasn't um, I, I don't know if that's off your point but you know it's it's uh, um, I think that I guess what I'm saying here is that that uh, whatever action we take has a result. It has an immediate result. Mm-hmm. It has a, a karmic effect. Um, and um, um, to actually to try to to extract justice, to try to forcibly balance the scales backward by using your will and your Activity. I'm not sure if that's the right way to go, because from the moment that action happened to me, I was trying to just uh, um, see it as for some lesson, and and it, it kind of did give me a lesson, um, and uh, uh, I feel I felt almost grateful to this this person that he blessed me with my life because I had some plans to do things and. Uh, mm. And I just didn't feel anger towards him. Mm. Um, but I'm not saying that's the right thing. I mean, for others, they may feel very differently. Um, but that's the way I felt about it. <laughs> so the relationship uh, that we have, um, the inquiry that we might have, the curiosity about original justice, and um, it's 
perhaps inherent value within our own lives. How do we apply that when uh, to perhaps a person who has every right to um, feel that punitive justice is actually the way to um, do justice? Well, I think that the that uh, if you look at um, stories about people who feel that punitive justice is the correct way to go, they often have a change of heart later. You know, like there's a, there's a word that's overused that's called closure. So people want closure. Um, so when... Um, uh, when when somebody is murdered, for instance, um, and somebody wants the death penalty, it's 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 well you know chronicled when when people go there and they actually witness the state committing a, a kind of murder, you know, killing the person who killed, um, they don't feel better. <laughs> they don't get a sense of closure. However, the other the the other people who actually start from the moment that something has gone wrong to uh, have compassion for maybe the people they've harmed, um, everyone feels better. <laughs> I'm sure these are some of the things you've explored over your, over your weeks doing restorative justice. I mean, it's like in, in New Mexico, there's somebody I don't know, but I know his uh, sister well. And uh, he, he uh, committed a horrific crime once. Um, he had drank... Uh, uh, alcohol and went the wrong way in a highway and uh, and he killed some people. He's a Native American person. There was a lot of hateful stereotypes thrown at this person. I mean, really hateful things. And he happened to come from a beautiful family, um, uh, the House family of uh, uh, Navajo Diné. People are very educated, very very uh, beautiful people. Um, you know, it was a horrible thing that happened. But he, he, when he realized what he had done, offered so much sincere love and prayers for the the people that uh, um, that he, that the family he had harmed, that they then uh, really embraced him, and they uh, and there was a, a great reconciliation. And there's there's so many other stories like this, you know. So. And that's the way indigenous people, as I understand it, you know, uh, practiced what you might call justice a long time ago. I mean, my my friend Moonhawk used to speak about the, the you know, what happened in in in, in traditional cultures very very long time ago, even before we have agricultural cultures when all the tribes were nomadic, you know, which is you know more than ten thousand years ago. What happened when when uh, someone committed some kind of uh, crime, you might call it, or some kind of act that was uh, egregious. I mean, there was a, the people would come together, they would meet, and then there would be a lot of love and compassion offered to the person who had, who had gone off kilter. And the absolute worst thing that would ever happen if that person was irretrievable is, is that the person would be, um, would be extricated or, or or expelled from the tribe, but even that happened subtly, and all that would happen is the tribe would move away in the middle of the night, and he would wake up there the next day. You know, and it, it, there wasn't a confrontation. In other words, it, it, um, that's the word, and that, I think that's an extremely rare thing. So, I mean, mm. I'm just blessed to have known people like Grandfather Leon. You know, and some of the people on the call have known him. 
and he mm-hmm. was remember leon and he when he said to me that it's time to get past historical trauma <laughs> which is a mm-hmm. very controversial thing to say um <clears throat> he really meant it okay mm-hmm. I, well definitely uh hearts open in honor to grandfather leon and just taking a brief moment here, if you're just joining us tonight, welcome. And we're going to be opening up the dialogue circle in just a moment here. So if you care to make a comment, ask a question, you can press 1 on your telephone keypad. And of course, we are having a wonderful conversation here with Glenn Aparicio Perry. His upcoming book is called Original Thinking, a radical revisioning of thought, time, humanity, and nature. And for more information about this series, weekly series, and independent media platform and source for tools, education, connection, and dialogue, go to restorativejusticeontherise.com. And you'll also find last week's conversation with Brian Stevenson posted. You can freely stream and download those audios. Again, at restorativejusticeontherise.com. So tonight, in this next half hour, if you have a question or comment you'd like to ask, please press 1 on your telephone keypad. I know we have a lot of wonderful folks from both the United States and Canada on with us tonight. We'll do our very best to get to you um, and open open up the conversation. We also uh, really appreciate the questions that were submitted tonight. So I would like to start with one of our pre-submitted questions, if I might, Glenn. Uh, And it has to do with, and it's uh, it's about the Idle No More movement. And Emily, thank you, Emily, for this question. If possible and if relevant to the discussion, could you discuss the Idle No More movement within this framework? and suggest ways for non-First Nations people to enter into the dialogue. Hmm, what an interesting question. Well, the Idle No More movement started at a time when someone dear to me was uh, past the spirit world. That was a Tobasanaquit canoe, uh, and uh, uh, who was from Winnipeg in Canada, and... and um, um, taught me a great deal about uh, the pipe ceremony, which to me has a lot to do with what does it mean to be a human being. Uh, and Toba Sanaquit had um, great challenges in his own life um, that he wanted to reconcile, including, um, and in the last year of his life, after he, after he really, you know, medically couldn't have, but he already had massive cancer, but he he flew all the way to uh, um, uh, to uh, uh, Rome to see the first uh, Native American uh, saint uh, uh, ceremony. And a couple of years before then, he had gone to Rome to see the Pope, and he had, uh, had gotten an audience with the Pope, which even the 13 indigenous grandmothers weren't able to do somehow, which is... Uh, chronicled beautifully in Carol Hart's film uh, about the grandmothers. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought at the time that somehow um, 
his power had something to do with his choosing to leave the planet at that time. He was going to help with this idle no more movement. But I, I'm not really qualified to speak fully on it. I just the way I think about the idle no more movement, um, which I did write a little bit about in my book, is that it's it's not a, a violent movement, but it is a movement of understanding that it's time now for indigenous ways to come forward and be treated in respect, respect relationship. It's time now to not allow the colonizing forces to just control the dialogue. It's time now to speak out and up, but not, not violently. And I think the same thing is happening with women and women's movement. It's time for the resurgence of the feminine. And there are women that are emerging who are becoming a uh, strong part of the societal dialogue. And so the voices that have been suppressed, uh, you know, are re-emerging. And uh, you can, mm. I, I tend to equate sometimes um, the voices of women and the voices of indigenous people um, because uh, both were treated with disrespect, horrible disrespect, um, and uh, and, and basically because these women's ways were more connected with the earth, with the rhythms, the actual, I mean, look, you know, a woman's menstrual cycle is, is of the earth, you know, and, and uh, that's why it's so such one of the more powerful ceremonies that anyone could do, that women do. It's actually bleed into the earth sometimes. It's done in indigenous ceremonies, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Mm. <laughs> so. It, and, and Glenn, if I might, I just would like to, to add to that um, in the sense that what you bring up, um, restorative justice and the idea of creating a sacred and safe space for voices to be heard and mm-hmm. also for there to be the ability um, to, to feel safe, to, to voice what has occurred um, to be organic about it and to remove what, you know, dear and uh, amazing Leroy Little Bear calls, I believe, tacit in- infrastructures yeah. from that space. It, that, that relationship to justice um, could be, in many ways, uh, you know, the transformation and the, ba- or the rebalancing of, of the masculine and the feminine um, and bringing forward the ability for us to see the power, the true power of opening to dialogue. And on, on that note, speaking of which, we have a lot of, of people who'd like to join the, the conversation. Okay. So let's open it up. Um, Catherine, welcome to the dialogue. You're live. I think we may have lost Catherine. I'll go ahead and go on over to someone else here. Um, Let's go ahead and open it up to James. James, welcome. You're live. Hello, Molly. Hello, Hello, James. Welcome. Hi, James. Favorite people, my favorite people. So what a wonderful topic. Thank you so much for the sharing. And I thought it was interesting that you are being interviewed today on the feast day of Guadalupe. And, you know, Guadalupe, she who stands in the sun. What a radiant 
masculine and the feminine and the natural mm. and the spiritual world. And of course, in her original name, she is known as Tonansin. And mm-hmm. it just made me think of you know, how Tonansin was expropriated. In some ways, an attempt to integrate you know, the feminine, but in another way, that cultural expropriation, which is a travesty of justice that we see in relationship to indigenous people. And I wonder if you talk about some of that expropriation and that that sense of the origins of the divine feminine and and the nature feminine. Tonantzin was too wild and dangerous. She had to be put within the context of a more patriarchal system. Anyway, I'll I'll leave it to you on that, and then I'll I'll retire. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you, thank you so much, James, and and uh, for your contribution to the world and all the work that you do as well. That that's James O'D, folks. Thank you, James. Wow, beautiful. I I feel he needs get get, get that man a cup of tea, and he's going to be uh, retiring. But he but his his way of retiring will be very active. Uh, thank you, James. Thank you for your beautiful soul and a very interesting question. Um, uh, Tonan seen to not be seen was not seen. You you raised the question of ex, 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 uh, appropriation of knowledge, um, which is a really complex question um, and uh, one that I've often been asked about actually because you know in bringing together dialogues between western people and indigenous peoples and and uh creating a safe space for people to discuss deeply um it's 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 quite a risk that's taken it's a risk for everyone and it took a few years but we we eventually had to write a a primer on dialogue process which we used to give out to people to read and digest before they came to the dialogue so that they understood the risks that were being taken. Um, and one of the risks that is perceived by often by indigenous peoples is that if they, if they share some of their uh, wisdom, some of their traditions, that they will be taken piecemeal, misunderstood, misapplied, um, and people will take credit for it. Um, uh, I'm sure somebody will criticize me for that at some point, you know. And you know what? I, I mean, for myself, um, the most important thing, and I can't, and I think, I think a lot of people would may um, feel the same, is, is to make damn sure that anything that you hear that's um, uh, that is a sharing in a sacred space, make sure that it goes to your heart and until it does then you shouldn't be speaking about it you know so um um james brought up the divine feminine do you want to address that molly well i think or do you want we, to go on i i mean i yeah could talk i mean on that, that, that that that's such a deep uh, and yeah. um woven space within our conversation tonight. Um, I would like to, given that we have a queue, go over to a few more live questions, but certainly sure. 
the divine feminine being such a uh, an aspect of all of this. So uh, let's hold on that for a moment and and open it up, uh, Vicky. You're live. Hi. Welcome good evening circle. and. Um, Greetings, Glenn. I um, mm. I just want to thank you for having Glenn here. I'm I'm reading his material. It is incredibly engaging and heart based and wise. So, thank you for this conversation tonight. And interestingly, my comment um, brings in a bit of the sacred feminine here, which is um, uh, because of this discussion, I'm remembering this story that comes from the indigenous African tradition of when a mother, a woman decides she wants to conceive. The tradition is that she, I don't remember what tribe this is, she will um, go off and sit under a tree by herself and listen until she can hear the song of the child, the song of the child that wants to come. And after she's heard the song of the child, she comes back to the man who will be the child's father, teaches it to him. And then when they make love uh, to conceive the child, they um, sing the song during some of that time. And then when she's pregnant, she sings the song of the child. When the child is born, this child's song is born. The people gather around and hear the child's song to welcome it. When the child grows up, um, the other villagers are taught this child's and every child's song. When the child falls and is hurt or something befalls them, the child, the song is sung to them. When they go through achievements, um, rites of puberty, the song is, is sung to them. But here's the part that is so moving to me. If there's an occasion on which the child commits a crime or aber- ab- aberrant um, harmful act, the individual is called, I can hardly ever say this story without coming to tears. Ah. Mm. Uh, all right, so the child, uh, the individual, now probably an adult, is called to the center of the village, and the people in the community form a circle around this person, and they sing their song. This child, now adult, sings their, the song to this person, and it reminds this person of their original wholeness, their essence, mm. and maybe even their purpose. They sing this song. And so what the story makes me wonder about, and, and, and Glenn, since you have so much experience with indigenous culture, it makes me wonder what we might have lost in terms of justice around the idea of, of um, predatory, harmful behavior as a forgetting of our original wholeness, our original belonging, our original essence of who we really are and what we're here to contribute, and how, um, how we might remind one another of that somehow, get back to a way of being where we originally see that in each other, remind each other of that all through our lives. I mean, to me, this is a beautiful story of um, original justice. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, am I live, Mike? <laughs> you are live, Mike. V- v- Vicky, uh, thank wow. You so much, thank Vicky. you. Th- thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's a beautiful story, and uh, um, and it's. I think there are more. You know, there's several tribes. I mean, that have these traditions, including in the Aboriginal tribes and, and the Dagara tribe in in Africa. Um, I've we had the blessing of uh, working with Son Bofu Somme, who, who, who spoke about some things similar to this, but you've just said it so beautifully, there's nothing else to say, but I think that that is 
you know, there's an essence, um, an original wholeness, as you said, you know, that uh, needs to be restored if it's gone. That's the nature of all ceremonies, you know, it's to restore us back, you know. And and the problem with um, uh, that we've kind of fallen into is that we're in a culture where we, where we have we're very noun based culture. We're very we want things to stay the same. You know, the justicism is supposed to stay the same, and uh, it doesn't. It moves. It changes. You know, and uh, people change, and and uh, uh, they need to at times from time to time we need to come back and remember. And that's what remember means to become whole, uh, and and uh, it's the opposite of being dismembered. And and when we when we remember, and remembering the song, oh, that couldn't be more beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Mm. Mm. And a, a an element of uh, restorative justice and practices also really looks at the fact that uh, that a person is whole. It's the act uh, that, you know, whatever brought the situation out of harmony that is, is where we look. And an invitation to come together in a way that perhaps we, at least in this culture of ours, aren't used to coming together um, in, in a space of, again, that, that safety and the ability to voice those things that are some of our our darkest things. And restorative justice strives to support that as best as possible while honoring those who've been harmed and allowing them to lead us in a process if, if they so wish. And it's just so beautiful to see the success stories that are, as many of you know, happening right now under our noses in our communities, some of them being um, the Community Conferencing Center over in Baltimore and Lauren Abramson, who, if you haven't already seen, uh, she, the, her organization and her team was featured prominently on a recent PBS documentary called Fixing Juvie Justice. And it also talks about the Huarnui and the New Zealand process, which brings together uh, all the stakeholders uh, into that community house and the process of sharing breath and of recognizing that we are all at essence whole and have a song. And I'm just so moved by you sharing that, Vicki, tonight during this conversation because that's that's uh, how do we bring that back? I think I heard you ask into the fold here as we reweave our system here, at least in the United States, if not much beyond. And by by doing that for one another, um, the restorative justice and practices seem to have that element of really bringing back the humanity and the wholeness to uh, while still allowing for accountability and for, for the making right and rebalancing together. I didn't mean to take so much time there, but I was just extraordinarily moved by what you shared and, and of course, Glenn as well. But I, mm. let's go back to opening up the line again because we've got quite a few questions and comments, and I just want to welcome you warmly, Kennedy, into the dialogue. Welcome. 
Hi, this is a such a beautiful communion and, and my favorite people too, Molly, Glenn and James. And I love what Vicky shared as well. Um, this is so rich. I have to say I'm also reading Glenn's material and it, it to me, just to sum it up, it is a return to the sacred. That's how I would put it. It's like a, a beautiful treatise for the future of our planet and very restorative for every living being, not just humanity, but every living being in the earth and the cosmos. So um, I can't wait for it to come out for everyone to see. It, let's, let's play with a current event here, if that's okay, because I'm very curious about some ways to handle the, um, the news now about this 16-year-old from a privileged family who... Uh, ended up killing four people in an accident after drinking. And the outrage of the public in the regular punitive sense, how would we restore this human being under this particular circumstance? I'd love to hear what you'd have to say. Hmm. Wow. Well... Hmm. Uh, Kennedy, uh, thank you. Uh, blessings to you. Thank you for being part of the the electronic talking circle. Thank you for your kind <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I, um, I, I, you know, I, I certainly don't have the answers, except that you know, uh, I, I was talking earlier about what had happened in New Mexico, about in a similar way, where the difference was that the person wasn't from the privileged family, although they actually were from a very good family, a um, uh, Navajo family, uh, the, the, the House family. Um, so I'm not familiar with this case, believe it or not. I don't necessarily have my pulse on all current events. So I, I, I just, um, um, yeah, I mean, as much as possible, if we can move from punitive to what... Uh, I think Molly, one of your favorite people, Sylvia Clute, says, from punitive to unitive. I love that, getting rid of the puny P and uh, going back to the unitive U-N-I-T-I-V-E. If you can, if we can, uh, but this is, but this is, if you're talking current events, it's happening, there's probably a trial and there's, and there's uh, um, the, the reconciliation and the healing is probably going to happen despite the 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 trials um, that that go on, so that's all I can say on that. I'm sorry. Thank you. And and Kennedy, that's such an important question to pose. Um, and perhaps I might add an example of how that did work in uh, a related case that maybe perhaps quite a few of us have have noticed. It was featured in the New York Times not long ago, earlier this year. And it was the case of a young woman who's, uh, I believe, perhaps close to being fiancé, murdered her. And her family, the, the, the fiancé as well as her families, both of them, they were all very close. And of course it was extraordinarily devastating and unthinkable. And it took some time and some very careful negotiating. But in the pre-trial space, there was an opening, sort of like the clouds opened and the light shone through. 
And the DA, uh, I believe at the time, made a decision to go along with the idea that they would hold a talking circle in honor of the young woman, her name I believe was Anne, who was murdered. And not only that, to have everyone who was directly involved, also at times known as stakeholders, and that stakeholders can of course include communities and much beyond. We know ripples happen much deeper than we might know as far as the effect. Um, but in any case, what, what occurred was one of the first instances of the willingness of the officials to, to go about a process pre-trial that would support the bringing to light the stories of the mother and father who lost their murdered daughter, the, um, the needs, the wishes, of uh, you know of how this would be, you know obviously it's very difficult to even comprehend making anything like this right. But in light of that, hearing from the parents of the young woman how they saw the young man who um, who murdered their daughter playing out uh, a, a rebalancing in in any way possible of of his taking of their daughter's life. And what occurred was um, in the sense of uh, the closing of that circle, I believe, they, they created uh, an agreement. And then, of course, eventually what occurred was, was he did end up still going to prison, and he agreed that he needed to, as well as, as the, the daughter's family but there were were pieces of the story, um, things like uh, you know what what was going on at the time that the murder happened. What what were her actions? You know, details that are missed out on by those who are um, devastated by these crimes and and harms, um, as well as the opportunity for those that that caused them to. You know, to share their story, to share their remorse, and to to be able to to come to some kind of terms that uh, with with the the punitive system. Of course, we know that there's laws against that, and that there's um, ordinances that 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 prevent um, people from being able to dialogue like this. So this was this was an extraordinary example of a way in which we might in the future continue to respond to something so serious and so devastating like what you're describing. Um, that article was in the New York Times and I, I can't remember the, the name of it, but I just wanted to, to mm -hmm. offer that. And also to say that oftentimes in this dialogue, Circle and, and broadcast series, we, we bring up the question, well, how would we respond restoratively to, for example, the Martin Zimmerman case? You know, what are the ways in which we can reframe our, our responses? And so before, before we go into our closing, and I know you have a, a, a few more things you'd like to share tonight. Glenn, um, mm -hmm. and I, we want to hear about your upcoming book too and more information mm -hmm. about that. Can you share mm -hmm. a bit about just that though? How, how 
might we re- reframe our responses when atrocity such as what Kennedy described or um, otherwise happens? Sure. Well, for me, one of the most valuable teachings I ever learned was from Grandfather Leon Secatero, who taught me a prayer, which I say every day, you know, and in, in, it's in the direction of the West, um, thanking the ancestors. And I thank it's a growing list of ancestors, and 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 and. Uh, uh, but I I also um, what he taught me was that to be thankful for everything that had happened to bring bring me to this point in time, or you know, and and when we start to thank for everything that has happened to bring us to to now, it, it really. And I don't want to. You don't. It's not really a good idea to think about it in a linear way, too. It's not like it's just stuff of the past, and then we're in this linear point. It's more like everything, all the energies that are feeding you at the moment. Some of them are maybe even from the future, in a way. But, but you're you're grateful for everything, and and uh, from that place, it transforms the way you think about experience. Because every experience we have is an opportunity for learning. And every person we meet is an opportunity for learning. Every breeze that comes through the trees is an opportunity for learning. Um, there's a message there. Um, and we have to open up to it. And, you know, there's probably not enough time to talk about the, some of the things that I write in the book. But, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I do write in the book is that thinking comes from thanking it actually comes from a proto-Indo-European word, tang, which meant to think, and it also meant to feel. Um, so originally, why, why is that? It's because originally our thoughts were prayers. Originally, we were so connected to the flow of what was coming from through us that, that uh, uh that our thought was a fluid manifestation of spirit. And as much as possible, if we can move toward that, we will be able to recover a kind of a direct connection with spirit. I mean, the, by the time I finished writing the book, I began to think of uh, thinking and uh, as, you know, I've expanded the definition way beyond where it's normal places, you know, because we normally relegate it to this mental, rational realm. But thinking didn't used to be that way. See, it used to emerge from everything. It was spirit. It, you know, there was no difference. Um, um, we've just changed our, the way we define it. Um, and all of this is very restorative, very healing, you know, and uh, and if we are in the flow, some magical things happen. And, you know, one thing I wanted to do tonight, Molly, was, you know, you know, a magical thing that happened to me was, you know, I was, I was just contemplating doing this show with you on justice, and I, um, and I, I touched a book which I couldn't even see what the title was, and the book fell in my lap and opened to a page on justice. You know, and uh, when that happens, you know, you got to pay attention, and it's from uh, Gibran, and it's called the procession, and and it opened to of this and he said justice on earth would cause the jinn to cry at misuse of the word and were the dead to witness it they'd mock at fairness in this world 
Yea, death and prison we mete out to small offenders of the laws, while honor, wealth, and full respect on greater pirates we bestow. To steal a flower we call mean, to rob a field is chivalry. Who kills the body, he must die. Who kills the spirit, he goes free. Mm. Um, it's it's uh, I've always liked Gibran. Mm, me too. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's a very complex topic that you engage on. But what's really good is I'm sure every night you get to a place where people are in a sincere uh, um, encounter with trying to come to their own feelings about this. You know, and there's just so much that could could be said. It's it's impossible. But you know, what uh, Krishnamurti once said is that the the only questions worth answering are the ones that are impossible to answer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a pretty incredible uh, statement. And it's what I learned through dialogues and learned through tonight. You know, I mean, there, it's not necessary to answer all the questions. But when you, in the act of engaging with them something is learned that's pretty incredibly valuable. And mm. uh, that's why the ancients taught with riddles. That's why, the, you know, and that needs to come back into our education system. And we need to stop stop feeding information to people and, and just work with stories, because stories have richness, multi-layered meanings. I mean, you know, look what mm. Vicky shared earlier tonight. We were all, you know, uh, just viewing so much because it's the stories that do it um and uh you don't know you know information is just single pointed but stories are multi-dimensional like dreams and visions and all of that is very beautiful and it's just we can never comprehend the whole but trying to hold it in honesty and openness and receptivity is just a beautiful blessing mm. Well, it's been really an extraordinary sharing with you, non-linearly as well as within <laughs> this past hour, Glenn. And just before we all say goodnight, could you tell us where and when we might come across this wonderful book of yours? Well, your timing is good because we've just uh, uh, reached a contract agreement with North Atlantic Books, and I'm, I'm happy to be with them because they're really good people. I got to meet them in Berkeley, California, just a day before Thanksgiving, which was another blessed thing. I wasn't even planning on doing that, but I, I, I just uh, I met my agent, Bill Gladstone in uh, Cardiff by the Sea, and within 15 minutes after meeting him, he set up a meeting for me to meet with uh, North Atlantic in, in, in Berkeley, and uh, things. And they told me that they were having a discussion when my manuscript arrived. They were having a discussion in house about the dual meaning of the word original. That it could mean going to the origin, or it could mean something uh, mm. uh, new and uh, uh, fresh. And both are true. And uh, so it was kind of blessed, and it was meant to be. You know, so I'm very happy to be with them. And they told me then that it would take about a year, uh, a little over a year. So I would look for the book to come out in early uh, 2015, which sounds mm-hmm. far away now, but it's just over mm-hmm. a year. Yeah. Is there any other information or resources you'd like to share with 
our circle tonight? Well, I will be opening a website called OriginalThinkingTheBook.com um, um, in early January of 2014. And the intent there really is to engage in something similar to what you're doing in, tonight, you know, to engage in dialogue. And I'm also planning on um, beginning a think tank, you know, called, uh, you know, the Center for Original Thinking. And that will be uh, connected in a fluid way to the website because it will be part of it. Um, and that will be a community where people can can uh, uh, discuss in a sacred way because I'm concerned about that and uh, making and really thinking carefully about how to how to make it feel sacred on the web because too too much uh, too much of uh, that is not held that way on the web mm-hmm. today. Mm. Well, Glenn, it's been just an absolute pleasure and a deep honor to be with you as well as all of you in this this expanded dialogue circle here on Restorative Justice on the Rise. And I just would like to say in closing tonight as well to invite you to rejoin us in the new year. We're going to take a short break for the holidays and we'll be back in dialogue with Jacques Verdin from Insight Out on January 9th at our regular time, which is 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And in the meantime, I hope all of you will connect in this season of peace with your loved ones and be safe and joyful and happy. And uh, also, just a quick note about New Mexico restorative justice. I did find a a good resource site for those of you who had submitted questions about restorative justice in New Mexico. You can go to rjnm.org. That's Restorative Justice New Mexico. It has a list of resources and programs going down there. And lastly, just please um, visit the website for more information. You can go there for free streaming and archives, including last week's conversation with Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Institute and all of our powerful dialogues that also include Grandmother Mona Palaka and many other folks in this ongoing platform for all of us. Public dialogue, truthful conversation, and a sacred space for us to share important ideas and insights. And As your host, it's always a pleasure and an honor to be with you and, of course, with Glenn tonight. And we'll see you on January 9th, 2014. Good night, everyone.